there, I'm Cleon and Ian Lun, originator and series producer of the RT Radio 1 Davis Now Lectures. Geographer Jim Horahan was the consultant editor of our series first broadcast in 2002, entitled Engaging Spaces. It explores the nature of space in our lives, and it looks at how we engage space and are engaged by it. Here from the series is his lecture, Spaces of the Mind. Space, the final frontier. I wonder did Dennis Tito allow these words to cross his mind as he was blasted into space in April 2001. He had paid the Russian Space Agency $20 million for just over a week in space. It was an expensive week, but when he returned to Earth he described it as a trip to paradise. Tito's trip to space, or paradise, allowed him to enter the annals of history. He became the world's first space tourist. As a geographer, I find it more than ironic that Dennis Tito was described as the world's first space tourist. We're all space tourists. We are so from birth to death. There is a difference, of course, in the spaces which we tour. Dennis Tito toured astronomical space. We tour Earth space. Earth space is the focus of this series. Geography is the discipline that's most associated with the study of Earth space. If we tease out where the word geography comes from, then we begin to understand its origins and its concerns. The word geography comes from two Greek words, ge and grapho, which mean I write the earth. It's a global aspiration and it's certainly not a modest undertaking for any discipline. The fact that the words are Greek tell us something else about geography. The Greeks were the first geographers. They mapped their world and the spaces they knew. Greek philosophers also reflected on the notion of space. Aristotle developed a theory of place that he called topos. The word and the concept are still central to geography today. Topography refers to the shape and form of landscapes. Before he died in the mid-1980s, the French philosopher Michel Foucault said, The present epoch will perhaps be above all the epoch of space. Now, at the start of the 21st century, we have finally begun to pay space the attention it deserves. Spaces in our cities, our towns and our rural areas are under huge pressure. A growing population, a dynamic economy and an uneven geographic spread of economic development have all led to these pressures. Our lives are rooted in time and space. Historically, and I use the word in more than one sense, time was felt by many social theorists to be the factor that helped to explain our existence. Karl Marx, Immanuel Kant and many other social writers claimed that time, stroke history, was central to the development of society. Before his conversion to the importance of space, Foucault had said that time was rich and full of life, space was fixed and dead. I find this division curious. We exist in both time and space. As we live our moments of time, we do so within space. We're quite incapable of doing anything unless we have a sophisticated set of spatial relations. We think, just to name a few spatial terms about near and far, inside and outside, north and south, separated and joined. We take these spatial concepts and structures for granted. If we didn't have them, we'd be fixed in one place. Quite simply, we'd be incapable of moving. 
In such a scenario, the space we occupied really would be the final frontier. We couldn't move outside it. So what is the space that so preoccupies us at the moment? It's the space that tempts us all to ask for space to breathe. It's the space that causes teenagers to plead for their own space. It's the space that allows auctioneers to put up the for sale sign. Apart from the fact that they're all spaces, they have little else in common. Space is complex, and as a term, as a concept, it means different things in different situations. Geographers use the term space in three different ways. Firstly, we have space to breathe. That's space as a mental construct. Secondly, we have teenagers' own space. That's space as a lived space. Thirdly, we have space as the land for sale. That's space as a physical form. Each of these three types of space has a part to play in our lives. A man should clear a space for himself, like Dublin City on a Sunday morning, about six o'clock. Dublin and myself are rid of our traffic then, and I'm walking. Brendan Kennelly evokes the search for connection wonderfully well in his poem, Clearing a Space. How do we develop a sense of space? Are we born with it, or do we learn it? If we look at ourselves as simply being part of the animal kingdom, then our space is inherited. It's genetic and in our nature. Some writers like Ardry, Morris and Lorenz argue that human spatiality is largely innate and inherited. There would be clear benefits of such a genetic transfer. Space provides social organisation and stability for animals and could do the same for humans. The alternative view, such as that written about by Hall, is that we learn about space from the culture groups to which we belong. This view emphasises an ability to transfer spatial knowledge on an environmental basis. These two opposing views are often referred to as the nature-nurture arguments on spatial ability. I have no intention of completely rejecting the nature argument. I simply can't say for certain that our evolutionary background can be completely discarded. I do, however, feel that the environments within which we grow are of primary importance. If I'm pushed as to which of the two views, nature or nurture, I'd opt for, I'd have to opt for the nurture view. The fact that children and adults operate so differently in a spatial sense suggests that it's very much a learned behaviour. Much of our knowledge about how children learn about space comes from the work of Jean Piaget. His book, The Child's Conception of Space, was published nearly half a century ago. Many of his ideas have stood the test of time. He seemed to suggest that spatial intelligence was a different form of intelligence. Piaget argued that all studies of human thought must begin with the individual who has attempted to make sense of the world. Howard Gardner, in his book, Frames of Mind, maintains that there is persuasive evidence for the existence of several relatively autonomous human intelligences. One of these is spatial intelligence. Gardner suggests that Western civilization places a very heavy emphasis on two of the other intelligences, the logical, or if you like, the mathematical, and the linguistic. Other societies, for example island cultures in the Pacific, value spatial intelligence to a greater degree. I'd like to combine Piaget's thoughts about making sense of the world with Gardner's recognition of spatial intelligence. 
I want to consider them in the context of geography because I feel it can act as a prism and as a focus for such ideas. As I've already said, geography is concerned with the study of Earth space. Geographers differentiate between spaces that move and spaces that are fixed. Personal spaces move. As you're sitting listening to the radio, you have personal space around you. When you move, your space moves with you. Space has many uses. It helps us all literally to be people. It preserves our individuality and our privacy. We're not aware of our personal space unless somebody else invades it. Our personality affects our personal space. Imagine a party scene where extroverts and introverts might meet. The extroverts flit in and out of everybody's space. The introverts, on the other hand, jealously guard the little bit of space that they have. Moods and expectations matter. Friendlier people tend to stand close together in space, while formal business transactions tend to be conducted at a more removed level of space. The situations we find ourselves in also matter. I recently went to a football match, and naturally enough, the entrances on the way in and the exits on the way out were jammed with people. Nobody seemed to mind having space invaders around. In fact, the situation caused much good-natured banter. There was quite a density of people packed into a relatively small space. People didn't feel crowded. They tolerated less space and they did so because they were in a setting in which they expected less space. On the other hand, we sometimes feel crowded when we're in quite large spaces, such as a beach, and where there are relatively few people. Feeling crowded is quite different to a density of people. We can measure density, but we can't measure the feeling of being crowded. That happens in our minds, and like most negative psychological constructs, it's notoriously difficult to come to terms with. The situations where we might feel crowded differ. Some involve many people, others involve relatively few. Some involve a great deal of activity, others involve relatively little. We've got quite a problem when we try to abstract the common, crucial elements. The size of the space isn't critical, neither is the number of people. What matters is what's going on inside our heads. A physical lack of space is neither good nor bad in itself. If we feel crowded, however, the sensation is almost always negative. We've all heard the old saying, two's company, three's a crowd. That line is certainly not an invitation to the intruder to overstay their lack of welcome. Cultures vary in how they use space. I'm always fascinated by the contrast in the spatial behaviour of people from Mediterranean countries and those from more northern European countries. Is it due to the sun and the climate? Is it due to the fact that people from the Mediterranean countries spend far more time out of doors? Whatever the reasons, people generally, but teenagers especially, are much more casual and assured in how they use their personal spaces in Mediterranean countries. Here in Ireland, we're improving. Older Irish people still tend to be more reserved, while younger people are far more assured and much freer in how they engage this very personal type of space. Regardless of where we come from and regardless of our stage in life, we all have rules about what is and isn't appropriate. It's quite intriguing to see people protecting their privacy and their space on crowded buses and trains, especially when they do so at rush hour. They preoccupy themselves with newspapers and books. Quite often, they don't even lift their heads until their journey's end. 
their defence mechanisms create a sense of detachment for people when their personal space is both lessened and threatened. It's even more striking when a person on a bus or a train tries to read a neighbour's reading material. It's as though the personal space barrier that's represented by the newspaper is also being invaded. Quite often, the offended travellers adopt a further defence mechanism and close the paper even more tightly around their bodies. Rush hour travellers also avoid eye contact. It's as though they're eliminating any possible gesture that might be interpreted as an invitation for conversation. We clearly use lots of strategies in our attempts to buy spatial privacy. Above all, we're trying to maintain a sense of self-identity. In bigger towns, bigger cities, we come into contact with large numbers of people on a daily basis. The more private we manage to be, the more likely we are to control the number of people we interact with. We're saving energy, psychic energy. Have you ever noticed the way we drop our guard on occasions? When we get extreme weather, such as heavy snow, there's a far friendlier atmosphere between people in the spaces they occupy. We begin to say hello, and we might even speak with strangers. But when the snow melts, our resolve to be private freezes again, and we retreat behind our walls. I mentioned the nature-nurture argument earlier. We tend to defer hugely to public figures in terms of the space we allow them, is it because we regard them as needing more space because they have a sort of spatial aura around them saying, keep out? Or is it perhaps a stored memory from our more primitive animal past in which smaller colleagues give more space to larger, more important animals? Teenagers often speak of their own spaces. At that stage of their lives, they tend not to differentiate too much between, say, their bedroom spaces that they regard as being absolutely sacrosanct and there are personal spaces that move with them. When we use the word space in situations like this, we're describing what's called lived space. There's very clearly an overlap between spaces that move and spaces that are fixed in situations like that. Traditionally, geographers have always studied fixed spaces, perhaps at times to the exclusion of equally important mobile spaces such as personal space. Fixed spaces are usually called areas or territories and may be studied at a variety of levels. Some of these studies have been conducted at a microspatial level and tell us much about how we function as people. Have you ever noticed just how many directions for journeys in Ireland seem to involve pubs? Can we explain it simply by referring to the importance of the pub in Irish cultural life? It's probably part of the explanation, but I think there are other factors that may be equally important. Pubs tend to be hard to miss. They're generally bigger buildings than houses. They're usually named, and from that point of view, they're also very hard to miss. Finally, they're usually located in well-chosen places, what geographers would call strategic locations. These are locations at which we often make navigational decisions, and pubs, therefore, are ideal cues for triggering decisions about the directions and distances that make up our journeys. When we leave one place and go to another, we don't behave randomly. At least, we don't behave randomly most of the time. We use maps that we carry around in our minds. These mental maps have all sorts of signals built into them. They tell us when to turn, how far to go before we turn again, and so on, until we reach our destination. Places make a visual impact on us, and these make up a large part of our mental maps.
There are other more subtle aspects of the spatial environment that also feed into our maps. Sounds may register. Passing trains, running water and heavily trafficked roads may all input into our decision-making process. Smells may also be significant, but they usually tend to leave their mark for all the wrong reasons. Our mental maps that guide us through the spaces around us are very personal to each of us. Yet, if we tease out the elements that make up our maps and compare them with other people's maps, there are also considerable overlaps. It's intriguing that many other people also share many of the spatial cues that are stored in our minds. It's very obvious that we can't store all of the information that spaces hit us with. We need to be selective. We discard large chunks of redundant information. Reading any space is very much like reading a piece of written text. There's a very real chance that as little as 20% of it registers, but that's usually quite enough to allow us to operate within our spatial environments. If we find that our map isn't working, then we change the information we've got stored. Our behaviour feeds back into our mental map and then, hopefully, we should begin to operate in a more successful manner. It's interesting to watch people constantly trying to improve their decision-making strategies for their journeys. Over the last few years, many roads that run through residential housing estates have had ramps put down on them. Those are an attempt to deter, or at least slow down, the so-called rat runners who divert through the estates. Earth space is very clearly a finite quantity when it comes to trying to squeeze in extra cars onto already busy roads and streets. Now, how do all of our spatial learning, information and behaviour help us develop life spaces and live spaces as people? There are some features that seem to be specific to some groups of people. Others seem to be more universally applicable. When in Rome, do as the Romans. That's a sound and sensible piece of advice. It also describes the very individual nature of the lives and living spaces of different culture groups. Eric Erikson, the psychoanalyst and anthropologist, regards humans as relatively pliable animals. In his analysis, they depend very heavily on learned as opposed to instinctive behaviour. Because of that, we become obsessively attached to our own native tribal cultures. It may well be that territorial spacing helps cultures to evolve in the same way as biological species do. Certain characteristics appear and develop in particular spatial environments. This may be partly due to people adapting to the actual environment and partly to the ongoing development and emergence of the very culture itself over a period of time. Other life spaces are more universal. If we begin literally at home, we have the first layer of space, familial space. This space is often marked by boundaries such as walls or fences round it. There's clearly a legal basis to the privacy that people can enjoy inside these boundaries. People make their homes, they modify them, and they gain greatly from being homed. One of the most revealing ways of looking at the positive aspects of having such a space is to think of the alternative, being homeless. People personalise their home spaces by individualising their gardens and by painting their homes in a variety of colours. Greyness, the colour palette we most associate with the Irish winter, can at least be lessened by choosing bright and vibrant colours which give our home spaces the stamp of individuality and personality. I've always felt the Irish are slightly anarchical when it comes to reconciling, 
or maybe I should say not reconciling, their own colour choices with those of their neighbouring spaces. What other culture group could possibly consider painting, let alone actually paint, blues side by side with greens and many other colours of the rainbow? It's a way of making spaces our own. Thankfully, Irish planners are slow to be overly prescriptive in telling people what colours they may or may not use. People create large-scale, multicoloured pictures that seem to jump off the canvas provided by the landscape. It seems extraordinary, but it's now being suggested by some analysts that many people may see their cars as a logical extension of their home space. We drive around protected by a ring of steel, and that forms a space within which we can feel safe and sometimes, unfortunately, also feel aggressive. If we take the analogy a little further, we might suggest that road rage is very much linked with perceived ownership of a little bit of road space for a little bit of time. Disputed spaces don't just exist between countries, they also exist on our roads. If we move outwards from the home, we encounter a series of concentric zones with which and within which we interact. Neighbourhood spaces may be urban or rural. In fact, the rural is now becoming more and more urbanised as time goes by. All of these spaces have their own personalities and have been so well documented in Irish literature. John B. Keane's play The Field wonderfully captures the importance of owning spaces and the contrast between rural and urban spaces when the Bull McCabe says, That field is mine. Remember that. I'll pay a fair price. God Almighty, tis a sin to cover grass and clover with concrete. Within the rural or the urban, we may also have our economic spaces, the places where we work and our recreational spaces where we rest and relax. We also relate to many other critical layers of space, political, social, cultural and more. Counties provide us with further layers of identity and belonging. Our national space again gives us membership of a setting whose uniqueness appeals to us at many levels, not least attachment to known and familiar places and spaces. Geographers are clearly interested in large-scale, fixed spaces such as countries and continents. For many of us, these spaces formed much of the geography that we learned in primary and second-level schools. Macrospatial studies of large units of territory contrast very sharply with the more microspatial analysis of personal space and mental maps. Territoriality is a term that frequently hits the headlines. It does so because it involves boundaries, borders and contested spaces. The Middle East is a case in point. So too is Kashmir between India and Pakistan. In Northern Ireland, the so-called peace lines separate community spaces that are closely monitored by the people who live in them. Globalisation is happening around us. It has its supporters, and as we've seen at several recent G8 and EU summit meetings, its critics as well. Regardless of what side of the fence we're on, or even if we claim we're sitting on the fence, globalisation is changing the spaces around us. Ireland has benefited hugely in economic terms from globalisation. But as we've also seen, we're quite vulnerable to global downturns that seem to be very much removed from our control. Another major concern among geographers is that globalisation is going to further exaggerate the polarisation of the world we're living in. Rich countries and people may well become richer, the poorer countries and people may become correspondingly poorer. The world around us is changing, 
It's doing so more rapidly than at any other point in human history. The amount of space within our world cannot really change, but the ways we use it can. We live in a shrinking world in which travel is generally easier, cheaper and faster. Some writers suggest that after the headlong drive towards modernization and the resulting state of modernity, that we are now in an era of what may well be termed post-modernity. Large cities and economies are being fragmented, the division between rural and urban is becoming increasingly blurred, and people are seeking attachment to more human scales of existence. The geographer David Harvey characterises post-modernity as an era where there is an acceleration in time and space compression. At one level, that sounds very much like science fiction. The reality, however, is as Harvey describes it. We are very much in the era of what might be described as a start of virtual space. Global forces bringing all sorts of change and perhaps resulting as well in greater similarity between places and far less uniqueness in our spaces. The title of this series, Engaging Spaces, poses a dialectic in its makeup. It assumes that spaces engage us, but that we also engage spaces. Towards the end of Finnegan's Wake, James Joyce poses the dilemma of what it would be like to be lost at sea. Where are we at all, and whenabouts in the name of space? I don't understand, I fail to say, I dare see you too. We could very well pose the same questions about the earth spaces that engage so much of our life time and our life energy. We first need to know where we are, and then move onwards towards where we'd like to be. That was geographer Jim Howrahan with his lecture Spaces of the Mind. From a series entitled Engaging Spaces, first broadcast in 2002. Thank you for listening to this Davis Now Lectures podcast. For more information, go to the website on rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Davis Now Lectures. And for a weekly podcast, subscribe to Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get yours.